Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fish Tales. Today is episode 7 and many of you have been sending in your suggestions and requests for topics on the show. And currently, the one I see with the most votes are preparations and top tips for a day's fishing to help you get into the right mindset for chasing silver. Something you can listen to first thing in the morning or on the way down to the river before fishing. I'd like to take this one step further and split this into three episodes, one for spring, summer and autumn. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about spring fishing. Last episode, episode 6, covers a lot of ground on sinking line techniques and tactics, so don't forget to check that out if you haven't already, or recap it later on. First things first, preparing your gear. You can save yourself a lot of time, aggravation and heartbreaks by making sure your gear is all in good working order, you're armed with enough changes or spares, and you're dressed for the occasion. When preparing for spring fishing in particular, it's important to reevaluate the condition of your tackle after being stowed away through the winter. Working from the fish end up to the angler, check you have enough flies and hooks in your preferred sizes and style. For me, personally, I like singles, doubles and trebles. Though I would mostly fish hook flies in single and double, and tubes in mostly double, sometimes single or trebles for free swinging setups. The important thing to check with hooks is that they're still fresh, no rust, the hook point is not warped, and they're sharp enough that if you were to lightly drag the point across your nail, it would leave a mark. If it doesn't, they're definitely too blunt for fresh fish. I would highly recommend carrying a hook file with you on the water, but pre-fishing trip, it's worth grabbing it out to give your hooks some TLC. There are plenty of good YouTube tutorials on how to do this, but for me, I like to work each side of the point. It's worth bearing in mind that some hooks will take to sharpening better than others. Some, like more modern hooks, are forged from carbon steel and chemically sharpened, and will require a fair bit of effort to sharpen by yourself. I also find these to be the most inconsistent when it comes to hooks being sharp right out of the pack. If they've travelled a lot or shifted about in a box together for quite some time, they very easily lose their edge. It can definitely help to keep flies and tube hooks secured in a box in foam or hook holds rather than floating about. Another thing to consider is the barb of the hooks. Many modern hooks now come with small barbs that make releasing fish easier, although I have come across a lot of great salmon anglers that are happy pinching these parts down to make the hooks semi-barbless, to ease catch and release which is really important for our spring fish anywhere. Their feeling is that by having the barb and pinching it down, the small bump where the barb is still aids in a decent hook hold on the fish with the benefit of an easier removal. Worth bearing in mind, good karma if you believe in that sort of thing. With the hooks in good shape, I would then look at the flies, not for condition, but general selection for the type of fishing I will be doing. For spring fishing, I would definitely have a selection of large, weighted and non-weighted offerings, and I would lean more towards bright colours, with the exception of monkeys and sunrays. Traditional buckflies like Willy Guns, Gary Dog, more modern versions of the shape like Francis Flies and Snelders, Shrimp patterns like alleys and cascades, scandy patterns like the usual patacorva, potentially even some intruder style flies with orange and pink for more coloured waters. The same for monkeys too, tumul monkeys in orange and yellow are great for the coloured water, and then I would have black and yellow or black and chartreuse monkeys for the clear water. But what will make your fly choice is the location you are fishing, the type of pools and where you need to target the fish with the right line set up. 
Your first point of call for these decisions should undoubtedly be your ghillie and or other local and regular anglers who can offer their insight on the setup for success. We will come back to this, but as a general rule, I would come equipped with a selection of flies you are confident in for the potential conditions you would face in spring. Next, continuing up the fishing setup is the leader and tippets. We covered a lot about how to handle leader setups for sinking lines in the last episode, Ep6, but a really important one to remember, especially after the winter break, is to test and if necessary, refresh your leader and tippet spools. Nylon typically does not have a very long lifespan and there's nothing like shoddy leader material to ruin a day's fishing if you're lucky enough to connect with some silver. You can easily test the material by pulling off some line and tying a few knots, either leader to leader or onto hooks. If you break off under any pressure, less than you'd be happy with, the line has gone brittle and it's time for the bin. Nobody wants to lose fish over poor leader and tippet material. As fluorocarbon is non-biodegradable, their shelf life is considerably longer, but it is worth testing the material all the same, as I've lost count of the number of times I've had guests turn up with fluoro that fails on them at the first instance. This may be from degradation, poor material in general, or quite often something people forget about or just don't know is that fluorocarbon fails easily when it's not wet. The friction of the dry material tightening against each other in a closed knot is, a, is pretty intense and usually results in broken leaders, something I learned the hard way myself when I first used it. So if you're using fluoro, don't forget to wet the knot. If you are at all unhappy with the condition of your leader and tippet material, don't hesitate to throw it out and replace it with something fresh. That being said, it wouldn't hurt to check the quality of the line in the shop as well, as you've no way of knowing how long the line has been sat in warehouses or on shop floors. I'm sure any good fishing shop worth their salt will allow you to pull off a length of line to test it before purchasing, as I'm sure they'd like to know if the rest of the spools on the shelf are also on their way out before receiving a bunch of complaints. With dependable leaders and tippets in hand, I would maybe consider preparing some leaders for the river if you are customising your own tapered leaders from tippet materials. I would pre-make two to three in various lengths I might need. For example, four to five feet, 1.5 metres for really heavy fishing, nine feet, 2.5 metres for average to mid-water column fishing, 12 feet 3 meters is probably where I would start making custom leaders for subsurface fishing before looking to buying pre-tapered leaders in 15 to 17 feet 4.5 to 5 meter range. This can save a lot of time on the water especially when you have really cold conditions and you can't feel your hands or your fingers trying to make sure your knots are up to standard for springer fishing. If you need to replace leaders in varying lengths you have a bunch ready to go. So Hooks, flies and leader sorted, next is lines. This is fairly straightforward for me, I can never have enough lines, shooting heads and floating down to full sinking, skagit lines, multi-tips with floating bellies, whatever it is I will bring them with me, as you never know, and swapping out heads on the bank is not too bad in cold conditions and pretty quick. For anyone that isn't used to swapping out shooting heads, there's a great way to make them quickly interchangeable. You create a large loop in the running line, big enough to connect the heads like you would a tip section at the end of a fly line. Make sure to spool your heads with the front taper first and the rear taper loop on the outside of the spooled line. 
Then when you change the lines, you can slip the running line through the head rear taper and then put the entire spooled line through the loop to connect. I usually do this with the running line pre-rigged through the rod eyes. Then you can unravel the head and wind it back on. The whole process only takes a couple of minutes at a time. My choice of lines for the day will entirely depend on the pools I am fishing. Judging depth, speed, temperature and clarity, selecting the fly and technique to find the fish. If you think about targeting fish in this order of importance, you are well on your way to actively finding and catching fish. Think about the challenge you are faced with to effectively fish in the presented conditions. Select the depth, speed and fly size required to do this and match your setup to the conditions. This decision making process is fast tracked significantly by one of the most important practices in salmon fishing. Listening to your ghillie, guide and or local anglers. They know the water better than anyone. They can help you bypass a lot of mysteries on the water and help you find the fish. On top of this, you should definitely take into account what might have changed in the time between seasons. A big flood can irreparably change a salmon pool and the fish may not be there where they used to be. In this instance, it's important to read the water and make some informed decisions on where and how best to target the fish. Look for the smooth glassy glides nestled in runs. Look for disturbances on the water, small boils or changes in the flow. This may indicate submerged stones or structures that could hold fish too. As always, I would caveat this with one suggestion, and that is to trust your instincts and the methods and techniques you trust and believe in. If the suggestions just aren't working, it doesn't hurt to throw out the rule book and offer up something completely off the wall. We as salmon anglers can get a little too set in our ways that things will come right eventually, instead of reading the water and listening to instincts. If something isn't working, change it up. It's also worth noting that the condition of the fly line should be checked before starting the new season. Fly lines will degrade over time and if you're not one for heavy duty maintenance like me, it's possible your lines could be dirty or in need of some treatment. Soapy water works great and some line dressing doesn't hurt either for preserving low line friction on or in the water. Check your loops, make sure the core is in good condition. It's okay if the coating is worn away, all the strength is in the core. Just to recap on suggestions for various conditions, cold water and cold air temperature I would focus on slow and deep fishing with large bright flies, 6 to 12 centimeters or more. Full sinking lines or skagits with weighted flies controlling the speed of the fly is crucial. Especially below 8 degrees C, the fish can be less aggressive to moving towards a fly, but when presented with something right in front of them it could be enough to induce the take. I would then come up in the water column probably reaching subsurface to floating at around 11 to 12 C and above. Also reducing fly size and density of materials, using slim or lightly dressed versions and increasing the speed of the fly. As the water temperature rises, so does the speed of the fish in the water. This is one of the reasons I love springer fishing so much, is that the fish move slower, they're not so eager to get up the river and for this reason a big fish can be much easier to land as well. When it comes to fly lines, I would also highly recommend bringing spares, as I know what it's like to lose the perfect setup snagging on rocks and not having a replacement to keep on effectively fishing the way that I want to. These things happen and it's well worth having backups. 
just as important as the fly line is to check the condition of the running line. I would put their lifespan at a little shorter than a fly line, perhaps two to three years is the max with plenty of use. You can test the running lines the same way you would tippet materials. Make some test knots and test the braking strain under a pressure that you're happy with. If it breaks easily, it's time for a change. I find this is particularly important for the intermediate oval running lines as they can wear out fairly quickly and also hold a lot of memory when spooled up for lengthy times. It can be worth giving these a good stretch out before hitting the water. These are my preferred running lines for 90% of the fishing that I do as it's a lot of sunk line fishing in Scandinavia. Finally in the line rig setup is the backing, often overlooked and the one you really depend on when the big fish decides to go back to sea. Whether you use Dacron or gel spun, this line is used to getting wet and staying spooled up. It can degrade over time and become completely useless. Take the running line back to the backing once in a while, especially pre-season, and check everything is still good. If you are unhappy in any way, take it off and get a fresh ball put on. No shortcuts in salmon fishing. The opportunities are slim and we don't want it to all end in tears when the big fish spools you. And you end up not only losing the fish, but the hook, fly, leader, fly line and running line and whatever backing made it out of the rod. Another reason for checking the backing down to the spool is just to reassure yourself that the line is tight and smooth to the reel. A forgotten tangle or knot along the way is not going to be any fun and most likely result in losing fish as well. Take no chances. Next in the rig is the big tools for the job, the reels and rods. If like me, you're confident in the gear standing the test of time without cleaning them up after each session or even season, it's worth just having a look over the gear before heading out and making sure everything works the way that it should. Reel drag is nice and smooth, no grit or obstructions in the spool. Worth checking if any part of the reel where the line may catch is not sharp. The reel seat on the rod is gripping properly and not locking up and all the rod eyes are good and smooth. Sometimes grit on the line or rough textured surfaces on fly lines can put heavy wear on the eyes and you wouldn't want them to damage any part of the line when under pressure. So with the gear rigged and ready with plenty of backups for quick changes by the water, spring also offers a number of challenges when it comes to battling the elements of cold water and air temperatures, often with snow, ice, rain and everything in between. If you can comfortably stay warm and dry, you'll have a much more enjoyable day's fishing and you can be more mindful towards effective fishing tactics as opposed to playing chicken with the time it takes for you to get back to the hut and warm up in front of the fire. Fortunately, in Scandinavia they dress appropriately for any given occasion and they're no stranger to the coldest conditions. So I can give you my insights from them about the best way to approach dressing to stay warm with breathable materials on the river, from base layer to Gore-Tex or neoprene waders. First is your base layers and it doesn't get any better than merino wool. Lightweight, thin, stretchy and flexible, this material is designed to hug the body tight, so you better get used to looking a little bit Shakespearean. There are many different densities of wool you can look for, but if I had to recommend any for quality and options, it would be a Klima or Bergens, two Scandi brands. I have a light density for summer fishing and a heavy density for cold spring and winter conditions. Even when I'm not fishing, they're magic. The purpose of these materials is to wick away moisture from your body. Really important when you're trying to get about, you can get a little hot before dropping into a freezing cold river and barely moving. 
This would be one of the main culprits for getting really cold on the water. The base layer merino wool pulls the moisture away. Next we add a mid layer of standard wool or fleece clothing. This will help to maintain your body warmth using the wicked away moisture from the base layers. This goes for your socks too. Adding thick wool socks on top of your base layer socks will keep your submerged extremities from seizing under cold water and pressure. Then to keep all of this warmth inside and close to your body, as well as aiding in overall warmth, I would seriously recommend either Prima Loft, Down or a combination of the two in an insulated jacket and trousers. In my experience, Prima Loft reigns supreme for both warm, lightweight and low profile fit. It also works very well in warmer temperatures where Down might be a bit overkill. And although Primaloft jackets aren't waterproof, they dry quickly, where down jackets are a nightmare to dry and also bring the feathers back to life and fill the jacket properly. When they get wet, they can clump together and you have lots of blank patches on the clothing and you can really feel the cold coming through. A funny tip for fixing this though is to throw the jacket in a tumble dryer with some tennis balls. The balls bouncing around the drum and against the clothing pumps them back up again. So not a total disaster but still a lot of work when Prima Loft is perfect for the job. Next up is our waterproofing which I would start with the waders. There are so many waders on the market now that it should be known that even when it comes to Gore-Tex waders, there are varying levels of thickness to the material. A direct comparison would be Sims G3s to G4s, the G4s being a far thicker, more insulating material. I personally would choose a heavy base layer setup with Gore-Tex waders, but for those that want extra warmth, you can opt for neoprene waders, and these will help keep you toasty warm no matter what. Not so many on the market, but various makers still produce them. Understandably though, salmon fishing isn't cheap at the best of times, so a single pair of Gore-Tex waders that you can adjust your base layering to is the way to go for me and most other anglers. The most important thing with waders though is their effectiveness to keep water out, and there are no shortage of complaints when it comes to the longevity of waders these days. The trade-off of thinner, lighter weight materials has resulted in more issues with waterproofing. So it goes without saying that before you head down to the water for a new season, it's worth checking these over so you're confident you can stay dry. No matter how much prep you do with base layers, leaking waders are going to make you wet and cold very quickly. Top tip for this is to turn them inside out and fill them up with water. Check them over to see if there are any obvious leaks, wet spots. You can often find pinhole leaks as small bubbles of water trying to escape. You could add a little soap to the water which will make these bubbles more pronounced. Also, check over the seams to feel if they're wet or damp. If you do find anything, mark them off with a marker pen and fix them up with the required treatment. Aquashore is good and remember a little goes a long way. A small amount pressed hard into the materials is usually most effective. They can take up to 24 hours to dry but I found a decent UV pen fly ties would be familiar with shortens the drying time to just a few minutes. When you're happy with the waterproofing of the waders make sure to thoroughly dry them then turn them back out the other way and check the resistance of the outer materials. The water should form droplets and run off easily. If instead there's water absorbing into the outer material, this could permeate through eventually and the materials could use some treatment to revive its water resisting functionality. Something like Revivex is great for this. It's essentially a fine coating on the waders that bring it back to life.
With the waders in check and you're confident that they'll keep you dry, we can then add our outer shell jacket that will keep the top half of your body dry and also act as a windbreaker to resist those cold spring winds. A decent jacket should be comfortable to wear, not constrict your movements, especially when casting, and potentially enough storage to keep all of your spares for the day's fishing. Nothing too complicated as long as it serves its purpose. Again, you'll want to check for any signs of water coming through and treat your jacket accordingly if needed. I would then have a really good wool hat that I can put on or take off depending on the conditions. I find temperature regulation overall can be quite significant depending on our head temperatures, accounting for as much as 10%. As with hands and feet, our various extremities have special blood cells that aid in this and it's important to keep the general area as warm as possible when needed. That goes for one other thing when it comes to blokes too and something else entirely for women, but I'll let you figure that out for yourselves. Something extra that could be really nice on the water in cold conditions is some gloves. Personally I'm quite happy without as I find it gets in the way when handling line and I also don't want to remove any protective slime from fish during catch and release. I will also roll up my jacket sleeves and avoid contact against waders or jackets. That's one of the most painful sights to see is a big fish hugged up against someone's chest. That's the majority of the fish's protection in the river gone and I guarantee some of the fish we're seeing on the spawning beds with fungus on their bodies is from an absence of this protection. Last in my pre-trip gear list would be a solid, dependable, waterproof bag to keep all of my gear safe and dry. The best bags in sling pack design I would even take with me on the water if I'm going to be covering a lot of ground that day. Okay, so that's a lot of general talk about gear with some insights on what you should be thinking about when preparing to go down for a day's fishing. So I would sum up a tactical overview in the following. Research the water you're fishing and take time to study and learn it. Make sure to listen to the expert advice that's on offer. You can shortcut a lot of decision-making time here. Don't be afraid to find the right tool for the job. Modern salmon fishing gear and tactics allows us to target these fish in so many effective ways. And if the usual tricks aren't working, change it up. Fish deep and slow with large flies in cold water and fish further up in the water faster and with smaller flies as the temperature increases. Make sure the tools selected for the job are in pristine condition. If any part of the chain fails, it's likely to lead to misery when things don't go to plan. Every opportunity is a gift when spring are fishing, so if it needs changing, change it. Take time to dress appropriately for the conditions. A little more time to prepare can keep you happy and fishing all day long, while the other popsicles are desperately trying to defrost by the fire. You may miss out on a dram or two, but you can make up for that after sending a prize springer back to the depths. One final point would be to get yourself into the right mentality for springer fishing. This is a hunt for an elusive and highly sought after fish. They wouldn't be either if you could catch one with every run through the pool. Manage your expectations, stay focused on your tactics and methods, embrace the cold and often fatigue in the search for the ultimate fish. The reward could be in the next cast, the next pool or the next day you go fishing. Do what you love and love what you're doing. It's how the best fish tales are made. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I will definitely follow up with summer and autumn fish prep episodes. At the moment, I'm working really hard to bring much more guest shows for you in the near future. Episode 8 will be guest number 2 and I'm really looking forward to that. 
As we approach the back end of spring into summer, there'll be much more of these, especially when I get over to Sweden for the 2020 salmon season. I'll meet up with some of the usual suspects to get their insights and hear their stories about our much-loved sport and the fish we chase. Also, stay tuned for this week's Fly Friday, where Stuart Foxall will be tying a really cool bright pink skating fly. It's mostly for Pacific species, but I think it would work great for salmon in fast flows. Don't forget to subscribe to the Fly Fish Adventures YouTube channel. We're almost at 1,000 subs and I'm just about to start a huge fly tying project here that will bring a lot more videos, step-by-steps and general fly tying tips and tricks in the near future. Really excited about that. My studio here is now a combination of audio, film and photography, creating lots of new content I hope you will enjoy. So don't forget to share with all your fishing buddies. If you haven't already, subscribe to Fishtails on your favourite streaming platform. It does make a difference to the show development, especially when convincing some of the more elusive guests to come on. Thank you all again for listening. This has been Fishtails. I've been your host, Jay Bartlett. I'll catch you all very soon. And as always, tight lines. Tight lines.